Well, welcome back to to the sermon this morning. We're so thankful you could be here this morning, that you could join us uh, today as we preach the Word of God on this uh, Palm Sunday. Well, like I say, good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church Online. Uh, let me start by thanking you for joining us here for our live feed. Uh, if you're listening to this as a recording, I hope you're encouraged and challenged by what you hear. If you're joining us for the first time this morning, I hope that that you feel welcome by us. Uh, we are thankful that you stopped by. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are committed to our four pillars, the exaltation of God, the exposition of the scriptures, the equipping of the saints, and the evangelism of the lost. And if you would like to know more about our church, I encourage you to check out our website. If you want to know more about us, you can also send me an email or, or give me a call anytime. The, the contact information you'll find on the website. I want to encourage this morning our, our church body to continue reaching out to one another. We certainly need one another in these coming days and weeks. But even more than that, I encourage you to persevere in, in, in prayer. We need to be diligently praying about the situation that we find ourselves in. We find ourselves in an incredibly in incredibly complicated and trying circumstances. There are, as you well know, several prongs to this current crisis. There's the, the dread of sickness and death that, that many of us feel. There's the onslaught of, of loneliness and isolation that others feel. There's the, the fear of financial hardship and ruin that, that some uh, are concerned about. Our nation and the world seem to be, are, really are in crisis. Uh, there's, this is something that, that we couldn't have imagined even a, a few months ago. But we're not only dealing with the impact of the, the virus itself, but we're, we're dealing with a great apprehension over increasingly militaristic rhetoric even in our world. And so, so we are truly a, a nation and world facing potential calamity. I don't want to sugarcoat it. At the same time, we don't know which direction this will go. We, we pray that, that the medical community and, and uh, the science, scientific community will find solutions and that cooler heads will prevail. But as we endure these trials, as we endure the, 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 this not knowing, uh, we as the church must never forget the power of prayer. We must boldly and confidently approach the throne of God in prayer. Now, this morning, I've titled my sermon, Supercharged Prayer. In God's providence, we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, which picks back up on Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus, which he started back in chapter 3, verse 1. The president, let me, let me, uh, let me pray for us first, and then we'll, we'll start. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning as we... As we go through this time, Lord, I pray that you would settle our hearts, that we would look to your word, that we would trust in you for all these things that we are concerned about. In Christ's name, amen. Well, let me read the scripture this morning as, I, as we settle our hearts to hear the word preached. I'm going to start reading in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom 
every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his, of his glory to be strengthened with, with power through, the, through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray again, and we'll start with our sermon. Heavenly Father, again, I come to you and I thank you this morning again. As we ready our hearts for this time, Father, I pray that you would, that those who are hearing, that you would use this time, this, this preaching, so that people here may be encouraged, but also that they would come to know and hear the gospel and come to know you through this preaching in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the president and the coronavirus task force came out this week and said that they that these next three to four weeks are very crucial in the fight against the virus. We know that the infection has exploded in many urban areas despite all the efforts to fight against this in, invisible enemy. Every one of our lives have been turned upside down by this fight, and, and I'm doubtful. I'm, I don't know if the world will ever feel the same to us after this is over. Many of you listening will be directly affected by this adversary. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that some of us could face grave sickness and even death. Surely you've already heard of people who have died. I'm struck by how this disease has, has struck rich and poor alike. Uh, surely you've heard of some famous names who have died. Uh, just this past week, I read in an article, uh, these words, it was by an article in Time magazine, which chronicled of the deaths of some famous people that you may or may not know. But listen to these words. I think these words are, are informative to help you understand where the world is in dealing with this situation. This is what they, what they write in the, in the magazine. One of the biggest challenges of this unsettling time is the isolation we feel as we're separated from friends and family, all the people for whom we care most deeply. But just being alone is only part of the difficulty. Our sense of remoteness is intensified by a pall of unease we can't define. Loss and sorrow are also in the air. We fear losing, or we may have already lost people who we love. And when we work up the courage to look beyond our individual personal spheres, we see that many people who have made our world better in big and small ways have vanished before we were ready to let them go, end quote. Beloved, this Paul of unease that the author of this Time Magazine article references is the fear of death. Historically, the Paul of death has hung over humanity like a thick fog on a Florida morning. But that dark cloud has been pushed aside with the medical advances of, of the last hundred years. 
And now, in some ways, death has even been glamorized by our culture. In real life, we don't talk much about the gruesome truth of death, but we dress it up real nice in the movies that we watch. Something like this, like COVID-19, which takes no prisoners, has shaken us to our core. We have rediscovered that death is cold-blooded and ruthless in its advance. Rich or poor, ordinary or famous, every man, woman, and child face certain death. None of us, as it were, are getting out of this alive. The Apostle Paul writes this in, in Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Brethren, brothers and sisters, death passes over no one. Listen, listen to the words of Carl Truman. He says this. Death is inevitable, which is why each of us finds it terrifying. In this situation, it is the task of the church to mug people with reality before reality itself comes calling. Catch what he's saying? That as a church, we need to be willing to speak about death. We need to be willing to, to remind people of what they're facing before the reality of death comes knocking at the door. Haddon Robinson relates the following story, which illustrates how the natural man views death. He says this, and a man opens a newspaper and discovers it is dated six months in advance of the time he lives. Reading through the newspaper, he discovers stories about events that have, been, that have yet to take place. He turns to the sports page and he sees scores of games that have not yet been played. He turns to the financial page and discovers the rise or fall of different stocks and bonds. He realizes this information has the power to make him a wealthy man. A few large bets on an underdog team, a few investments in the right stocks, and all of a sudden he is a wealthy man and he is delighted. But he turns the page and he encounters a different kind of news altogether. It's the obituary column. And in it, he sees his pic picture and the story of his life. And as, a, as you might imagine, everything changes. Instead of being delighted, he is crushed. The knowledge of his certain death completely changes his perspective about the coming six months. Now, obviously, this story is not true. It's just a story. But it illustrates our thought process when it comes to death, that we want to push it away. But in reality, we can't. Beloved, we live in an age where men have forgotten the stench of death. And anyone who smells it just wants to get away, to hide from it. But this situation that we're facing, this situation, in this situation, the world is being forced to reckon with it. As the church, we must come out of hiding. Again, listen to Carl Truman. He says this. Yet the reality of death seems to have been signally absent from the public profile of the church in recent weeks. Efforts to fight the virus are important, but so is the church's task of preparing us for the reality of death. Beloved, as a church, we must rightly respond to questions concerning uh, the, the reality of, of death. The, this is a grim reality, 
And, but we're not just talking about physical death. We're talking about eternal death, eternal death and damnation. We not only face the gruesome nature of death itself, as bad as that is, but we face eternal judgment. In Hebrews 9.27, the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews warns, it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. In chapter 10, he goes on to describe this judgment as terrifying. The fury of fire. Brethren, the, hope, the church alone has hope for eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen to the Apostle Paul. In Romans 5, 17, he says this, For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Beloved, we need to proclaim the glorious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the perfect Lamb of God who has come to take away our sins. He suffered and died in our place taking upon himself the wrath of the Father so that you can be delivered from the bondage, from your bondage of sin. In Acts 4.12, it says, There is no salvation. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There are going to be people who reject that message. There are going to be people who reject the Lord Jesus. They reject the Lord Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. But we must still preach him. He is the only name by which man can be saved. Beloved, we know nothing of our future here on earth. If you're an unbeliever listening this morning, I beg you to call upon the name of Christ and be saved. Oh, I know that there are some of you that are listening to this and you will reject, you will shake your fist at God and you will say no. You don't know when your card will be punched. I beg you to turn to Christ. And if you're a believer, we don't know what the next moment may hold, much less six months from now. We but we can be certain of the promises of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We can be assured that God desires for us to look to him. And beloved brethren, we must remain vigilant. We must continue to seek the Lord on our knees. Oh, church, we cannot be idle. Many lives depend upon us. I'm not talking about physically. Yes, some of you are involved in the medical community, but I'm talking about spiritually. Those lives depend upon us to hear the gospel so that they might come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon says this, There is joy in hell when a saint grows idle. There is gladness among devils when we cease to pray, when we become slack in faith and feeble in communion with God. I know that we're called to this thing called social distancing, which I had not even heard of until about three weeks ago. But that does not mean we are to, to disengage from the world around us. The world needs the church more than ever now. We certainly can't disengage. We need to be preaching the gospel, and we certainly can't disengage and separate from the church. We need one another more than ever. And beloved, 
prayer. Prayer is one way that we can engage with one another. We must pray for one another. And we must pray for those who are perishing without Christ. In these dark days, we must labor in prayer. Yet we must pray effectively. Church, we must have supercharged prayer, just like the Apostle Paul. Now, you may be asking, what does effective supercharged prayer look like? Well, in God's providential timing, we've arrived, as I said earlier, in Ephesians 3.14, where the Apostle Paul picks up on a prayer that he started way back in 3.1. In this passage, Paul models three characteristics of effective supercharged prayer. First, our prayer must have, in verse 14, a profound catalyst. Look at your text. Paul writes these three words, for this reason. For this reason. Now, what Paul is doing is looking back on all that he had taught in chapters 1 and 2 and up to this point in chapter 3. So let me remind you, let me do a quick review of the structure of this letter. In chapter 1, Paul had told of the story, told the story of redemption starting with the foundation of the world or before the foundation of the world. And, and, and before the creation of the world and before the fall of man into sin, God had planned to redeem mankind and to save his people from their sins. Paul taught that as part of redemption, God blessed his people with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly and adopted them as sons through Jesus Christ. In Christ, God's people have been redeemed and forgiven of their trespasses through his blood. And they've been sealed with the Holy Spirit as a, as a full pledge, a, a pledge that is a full redemption. That's all in chapter, chapter 1, verses, uh, verses 3 through 13. According to Paul, God has brought all of this about in Christ, whom he raised from the dead and seated at his right hand in the heavenlies. And he put all things... If you look at verses 20 and 21, he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is the bo his body, which is the fullness of God in Christ. That's verse 21. Therefore, therefore, Paul taught that the body of Christ, the church, is the full manifestation of Christ in this present age, what we will call the church age. The church then, according to verse 23, Chapter 1, verse 23, has been given the very power of God to act in this world. Now, back in chapter 1, verse 16, Paul had prayed for the Ephesians that their eyes would be enlightened to the truth of all this, that their, their, that their, their eyes would be enlightened so that they would know the hope of the calling of Christ, that they would know the riches of the Christ's glory and his inheritance in the saints. And that they would understand the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Said another way, Paul prayed that the church at Ephesus would fully grasp, they would fully recognize the hope and the power of all they possess in Christ. Therefore, as the church, we must realize that the catalyst of Paul's prayer is always the person and work of Christ. His his work must always be the driving force behind Christian prayer. E.M. Bounds says it this way, the conditions of prayer are well-ordered and clear. Abiding in Christ 
abiding in Christ and in his name, end quote. Well, starting in chapter 2, Paul began to teach the Ephesians how all this had radically changed uh, the believers at Ephesus and beyond. They were, according to chapter 2, verse 1, they were dead in their trespasses and sins. They literally had the stench of death upon them. They were fully bought into this world, and all the world had to offer. They were on the road to hell just as the rest of the world. Yet God had shown mercy in saving them. Even more so, God had raised them from the dead, and he had placed them in Christ. God has raised us up, and he has seated us in the heavenlies in Christ. He has saved us by his grace through, through faith. That's Ephesians 2.8. This story of redemption has powerfully intersected each Christian's life. Even more than that, even more to that, according to Paul, God has saved Jew and Gentile alike. In, in chapter 2, Paul begins to reveal the mystery of the church, that God has made them both Jew and Gentile into a new creation in Christ. Believer, if you are in the church, if you've been placed in Christ, you are a new creation. You've been made into a new man. This is an uh, incredible reality. That At the cross, at the cross, God has put to death the enmity between uh, Jew and Gentile, and he has made peace. He has brought us together and made us into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. He has given us, as a church, beloved, a supernatural unity by his Spirit. Said another way, the same Spirit dwells in each and every Christian. He lives in you and he lives in me. No matter who we are, no matter who you are that is in the world, if you are in Christ, you have been supernaturally bound to every other believer who has or ever will, ever will live. This was Paul's point in the last few verses of chapter 2. Look there right now in Ephesians 2.19. It says, we were strangers and aliens, but now we are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household which has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom, that would be in Christ Jesus, the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the, world, in the Lord. Look at verse 22. In whom, that would be again in the Lord Jesus Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. This truth, beloved, drives Paul to his knees in worship and prayer. Notice in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, he begins, he picks up in, in chapter 3, verse 1 with the words, for this reason. Well, what reason, Paul? What reason? All of, chapter, all of chapters 1 and 2, but specifically the truth that as Christians, we are fitted together in Christ. Say, how do you know this is a prayer? Well, we know this. We know it's a prayer because you you might recall in a previous study that that chat, that verses two through fourteen form an interlude or a parenthetical thought where Paul explains how the truths of chapters one and two have been profoundly worked out in his own life and ministry. And in verse fourteen, where we pick up this morning, look at your text. Paul says again, for this reason, he's picking up. 
on his thought from verse 1. And notice what he says further in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Beloved, the truth of chapters 1 and 2 drives Paul to his knees in prayer. Just think of the implications of what Christ has accomplished in saving us. Just ponder what it means that we are in Christ that we're bound together by the Spirit. We are the body of Christ. We represent Christ to a lost and dying world. Beloved, this is the reason why the true church thrives in circumstances such as we face today. Because we are the body of Christ. The body of Christ, the true church, thrives in great difficulty. David Mathis of Desiring God writes this, Not only is the future of the global church certain in the sovereign power of God through Christ, but his sovereign purposes in the world center, we might say, on his church. The picture that the Apostle Paul paints in Ephesians 3 of the centrality of the church and God's work in the world is nothing less than stunning. Christ channels his global glory uniquely through his church. What that means is is that as the body of Christ, we have been brought together in unity, that we are the embodiment of Christ in this world. We are the embodiment of Christ's glory. Just think of what that means to us today. We are separated because of the COVID-19 scare, but as the church, we can never be divided. You see, Christ promised to build his church and the gates of Hades will not overcome her. The gates of Hades will not overcome her, including a virus called the coronavirus. Mathis captures this thought. He goes on to say, listen to this carefully. He says this, we are not the church in the coronavirus age. We may be enduring a global pandemic, but we do so as the church in the church age. We are not. Now We are not now living in a pandemic age or a digital age or a pragmatic age or whatever new thing you want to emphasize age. This is the church age. And we, end quote, and we are the embodiment of Christ in this age. He is choosing to work through the church in this age. Beloved, this is the church age because... Christ has promised to build his church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And Christ will be glorified by his body, the church. He promised to continue to build us up together into a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Brothers brothers and sisters, these truths drove Paul to prayer. He drove, it drove him to prayer to pray for the saints at Ephesus. He greatly desired that they would experience the fullness of these truths. He deeply wanted the church to contemplate the richness of all they have in Christ. Therefore, Paul was driven to his knees because he recognized that only the Holy Spirit could reveal to them the weighty, natures, weighty nature of these truths. In 1 Corinthians 2.10, the Apostle Paul says that the Holy Spirit reveals the things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard. You see, Paul realized that it's through the work of the Spirit that we can have any understanding of the person of Christ and the implication of these truths. And this knowledge drove Paul to prayer for the saints. 
He prayed that the Holy Spirit would cause them to consider Christ and his work of redemption, to consider what Christ has done in redeeming the world to himself, to consider the fact that they are part of this redemption. He prayed that the Holy Spirit would cause them to meditate on the glorious nature of Christ. And he prayed that they would, that the Holy Spirit would cause them to think deeply about all that Christ had accomplished in his perfect life, his sin atoning death on the cross, and his life giving resurrection. He prayed that they would ponder what it means to be in Christ and what it means to abide in him. And he prayed that they would contemplate what it means that they have been made a part of the body of Christ. What it means that they're now uh, being built up in Christ by the Spirit. Beloved, these truths supercharge Paul's prayer life. And if you will take the time to ponder these things yourself, they, they will ignite your own prayer life. This leads us to the second characteristic of effective supercharged prayer. Our prayers must have, number two, proper character. Proper character. Look again at verse 14. Paul writes, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Here Paul describes his prayer as bowing or bending his knee to the Father. Now, what we have to understand is, is that the normal posture for prayer in antiquity among Jews, Greeks, and Romans was actually standing. But on occasion, people knelt to pray. In the, in the Bible, and the scriptures, it's somewhat common to kneel to request something from someone who is superior, a, a powerful superior. In the Old Testament, in 2 Kings Chapter 1, verse 13, Elijah called down fire on two different captains with their 50 men. So the third captain, after he had witnessed this, came up and he bowed his knee before Elijah and he begged for his life and for his men's lives. In the New Testament, there are several examples where people came up to Jesus and bowed before him to request something. We have in Mark 140 and Matthew 17, 14 and in Matthew 20, 20. Clearly, what these instances indicate is some level of understanding that they were not, that these people were not approaching an ordinary man. Therefore, kneeling or bowing communicated a humble submission to and dependence upon someone in authority. And the scriptures, kneeling also became an appropriate posture before God in prayer, before God in prayer. In Acts 20:36, Paul knelt to pray with the Ephesian elders. In Acts 21.5, Paul and Luke, along with other disciples, kneeled to pray as Paul departed for Jerusalem. Therefore, kneeling indicated then the worship of God. Now, there is one incident in the Old Testament which may help us understand the nature, help us understand the nature of Paul's prayer. In Ezra 9.5, in Ezra 9.5, Ezra had just heard that the people of Israel and the priests had taken wives and intermingled with the peoples of the land. When he received this news, he was highly emotional, and he tore his garment, and he pulled some of the hair of his head and his beard. And the text says in, in Ezra 9.5, I arose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn, 
and I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God. Therefore, kneeling communicated a position of utter, utter desperation. This aspect then of, of great emotion adds to the, the great passion that must have been present considering Paul's imprisonment and sufferings, which he mentions in chapter 3, verses 1 and 13. From these, then, from these deductions, we can, we can give four truths about Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. First, Paul's prayers communicated a humble deference to the Father. The Apostle Paul had learned to live in humble submission to the sovereign will of God. He never thought of his life outside of the will of God. And in most of his letters, he says that he is the, the apostle by the will of God. So what Paul sees in terms of his life is he sees his life through the lens of God's will. And he doesn't see it any other way. You see, Paul would never think of embarking on anything without seeking the Father's will. He was completely submissive to the wishes of the Father. He was always in humble deference to the Father. Now, Paul's humble attitude also revealed his complete dependence upon the Father. You see, Paul saw himself as completely reliant upon God. He con consciously realized that he did not draw a breath outside of the will of the Father. Everything in his life was done through Christ who strengthened him. That's Philippians 4.13. He saw God as the one who richly supplies all his needs in Christ. That's Philippians 4.19. See, Paul understood that, that he owed everything to the Father, including his salvation. He recognized that he could never repay the debt that he, had, that he owed to God in Christ. And this then, thirdly, indicated Paul's undying devotion to the Father. Paul was willing to go to the ends of the, of the earth for Christ. In Romans 15, 20, it says this. He says this to the Romans. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. You see, Paul desired to be pleasing to the Father. He desired, he had an undying devotion to the Father. Therefore, he lived to fulfill the Great Commission. He was fully committed to take the gospel to the nations. He was always ready then to suffer greatly for the cause of Christ. In Acts 20, 24, he says this, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. And he says, I don't, I don't consider it dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. You see, Paul did not look at his life as anything of Christ, except to testify solemnly of the grace of God. You see, Paul's desire was only to be pleasing to Christ, even at great loss to himself. And he desperately wanted others to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Now, this yearning then conveyed a feeling, fourthly, of utter desperation for the Father's answer. The apostle's own ex experience of salvation made him long to see others rescued from the, their slavery to sin. He longed that others might experience God's grace. He wanted the many to benefit from the saving and transforming power of the gospel. Therefore, his, his prayers were incredibly heartfelt. 
He bowed the knee to the Father. He bowed the knee in utter desperation. Paul was begging God to show the church at Ephesus the full import of the great realities which they had been taught. Paul, he knew that outside of the Spirit working in them, that they wouldn't completely understand. Therefore, he was seeking the Father for these things. Paul had been willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. He had been willing to suffer for the sake of the, uh, the church at Ephesus. He had been willing to suffer for the sake of the Gentiles, and he desperately desired the church at Ephesus to understand this suffering and to follow in his footsteps. So Paul then became a prayer warrior because he knew that God the Father answers prayer. Listen to Thomas Watson. Thomas Watson says this about prayer. He says, prayer delights God's ear. It melts his heart and opens his hand. God cannot deny a praying soul, end quote. Beloved Paul, the apostle, was a praying soul. He prayed for the, those who didn't know Christ, that they would come to know the Lord. Paul wanted the church at Ephesus to experience, experience the same communion with the Father that he had experienced. Church, God wants us to be praying souls. He wants us to depend upon him in prayer. He wants us to, to come to him in prayer. He wants us to boldly and confidently approach him in prayer. He wants us to be people who pray. Well, we've seen the first two characteristics of effective supercharged prayer. Let's look at the third characteristics. Characteristic. Our prayers must have a precise center. Look at your text. Paul writes, I bow before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. Paul says that he comes before the Father. He uses the term Father, which emphasizes the intimacy of our relationship with, with our Lord. It also highlights the acceptance we receive from God when we approach him in prayer. We, as the pagans of Paul's day, saw the gods as beings that were to be appeased. But we don't, we don't need to imagine God, that, that God is indifferent and cold and, and an unloving, distant deity. We know God as Father. He is tender. He is loving. He is concerned. He is compassionate. He is accepting of us. He desires for us to enter into his presence. As a father myself, I long for my children to come to me. I want to embrace them. I want to, them to feel my love. Therefore, this, this term father precisely describes our God in heaven. He wants to be the center of our world. He desires to shower us with love. Loving fathers are always accepting of their children. True fathers are always compassionate toward their offspring. They're always tender. They, they're always concerned for their children. I will never... Forget the first time one of my kids went out at night. I was a mess. I was, I was so concerned because as a father, I, I, I was concerned what might happen to them. But even though, even good fathers, even good earthly fathers will always fall short. We will never measure up. We'll always fail. You can imagine the greatest of earthly fathers, the most loving, tender, compassionate father you could ever conceive in your mind. If you could somehow 
programmed the perfect father romance, a robot that is, he would fall unimaginably short of our heavenly father. Our, our earthly fathers will always fall infinitely short of the goodness of our heavenly father. But even our earthly fathers give us a glimpse of what God is and who he is. That's why God or Paul says that we can approach the throne of God with boldness and confidence because he is our father. He loves us. He accepts us. He shows compassion towards us. That's the kind of father that he is. He's the kind of father who will never let us undergo any permanent harm. He promises that not a hair of our head will perish. Yes, he will let us undergo testing, but he will never let true harm come to us. Now, let me give you a little piece of theological wisdom here. Paul's emphasis in these two verses is on the father, but that does not exclude the spirit or the son. My theology professor at TMS at the Master's Seminary, he had, he had what was called Dr. Mook's dicta. He said, one of his, one of his dictum is that, that, that there is emphasis, not in exclusion in the actions of the persons of the Trinity. So here we are correct to emphasize the Father's role as Paul, as Paul does. But we must never exclude the other two members of the Trinity, the Son and the Spirit. You see, in these verses, Paul emphasizes the Father because he wants us to see he, the, he wants us to see God as our heavenly Father. But he's not excluding the role of the second and third persons of the Trinity. You see, Paul simply wants us to understand that we can approach God's presence as one who is approaching his Father. Can you imagine? an earthly king letting his children play around the throne? You see, in a very real sense, we are God's children who are gathered around his throne. And we can, we can never forget, though, that he is still king, that he is still holy, that he is still sovereign. He is all these things, but he's also our father. The disciples' prayer in Matthew 6 captures this thought. It says, Our Father who is in heaven. Again, we see the idea of our heavenly father, but it says this, hallowed be your name. He's holy. Your kingdom come. He is a ruler. Head, your will be done. He is sovereign. Your will be done on earth as, as it is in heaven. You see, he is our father, but he's still the king. Now, I believe that Paul also captures the idea of God's rulership with the rest of this phrase. He says, before the Father, he bows the knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now, there's a play on words here that we can't see in English. The Greek word for father is patera, the, while the word for family is patria. So patera, patria. Now, I think what Paul then is conveying is there's a couple of ideas that he's conveying here. Now, I would argue that Paul's main point is that God is Father to all people. There's no exception. This fits well with the idea that God saves both Jew and Gentile, those who are far and those who are near. I believe, then, that this is a reference to Genesis 12.3. In that verse, in Genesis 12.3, God promises Abraham that in him all the families of the earth will be blessed. I would also argue, then, that Paul is, expre is expressing the idea of God's full sovereignty over heaven and earth. 
Again, the point is that there is no exception. Even those families of the earth who have rebelled against him, uh, against his against his rule, are still under his sovereignty. He's fully, he is fully, he fully rules over all the angels, including the fallen ones. All of the angel, angels, including Satan, are subject to the Father. Beloved, this is the God that we serve. This is the Father to whom we pray. You can pray to him with full knowledge that he will listen and he will lovingly answer as your heavenly Father. But we know that he's still sovereign. He's still ruler over heaven and earth. He's still completely in, in charge of everything. In the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he says this, the right way to pray is to stretch our hands, stretch out our hands and ask of one who we know has the heart of a father. Beloved, the maker of heaven and earth, the, the one who has created all things, the one who sustains all things by the word of his power, we can reach out to, we can pray to, we can come boldly into his, into his throne room and we can pray to him and we know that he will tenderly answer us. In this time of difficulty, in this time of suffering, we have a heavenly father who we can depend upon. We have a heavenly father who uh, none of this has escaped his focus. We can come to him in prayer. We can come to him trusting that he will answer us, that he is our heavenly father. Brethren, we have studied three characteristics of effective supercharged prayer. First, your prayers must have a profound catalyst like Paul you should be driven to your knees in prayer for your brothers and sisters in the church. You should pray that your brethren would fully recognize the implications of all that God has accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You should pray that they fully recognize what it means to be built up together in the body by the Spirit or in the Spirit. Second, your prayer must have proper character. Your prayers must communicate your humble deference or submission to the Father. Your prayers must reveal your utter dependence upon the Father. They must indicate your complete devotion to the Father. And they must convey your utter desperation, a feeling of utter desperation as you seek the Father's will. These were the type of prayers that Paul prayed. These are the types of prayers that, that God wants us to pray. Thirdly, your prayer must have a precise center. Put simply, we are to bow the knee, our knee to the Father who has created the world and all it contains. He lovingly, tenderly, genuinely, mercifully accepts us into his presence. We can boldly approach the throne of the Father because we can be certain of his acceptance. Beloved, I want you to know this morning that prayer, that prayer is your most powerful weapon in the war against sin and Satan. That prayer is your most powerful weapon as we face the difficulties that we see today. 
as we face this world pandemic, prayer is the is your most powerful weapon. Ian Bounds says this. Prayer is our most formidable weapon, but the one in which we are the least skilled and most averse to its use, end quote. Beloved, I join many of you in saying that we pray sparingly. Some of us, we don't pray at all. Some of us only pray when we need God. We only pray when we come to these kind of situations. I pray, my prayer for you and for me and for our church is that we would be a church that would pray at, at all times, that we would be a church that would pray without ceasing. Corey Tenboom kept his thought concisely by asking, is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? End quote. In other words, do you live your life in dependent prayer? Or do you wait for trials to come before you go before the Lord? Brethren, I hope that in these difficult days you are making prayer your habit. I also hope that you are effective in your prayer. I pray that your prayers are supercharged. These days that we're facing are incredibly difficult, and they seem to be getting worse. We haven't received much good news Yet we can take all our cares and our worries to the throne of grace. God has not changed his plan. God is still, still redeeming this world. God is still sovereign and in, completely in charge. As you endure trials, I encourage you to go to the Father for wisdom. I also encourage you to pray for one another during this time. I I encourage you to reach out to others and to know what they're facing and to take them before the throne of grace. I pray that, that they, they would understand all that God is accomplishing in the world so that they would not be full of worry and anxiety. I pray that you would be praying for others that way if you understand that. But more than that, during this pandemic, many people will be in despair. Many people will despair even of life. I talked to a young man even this week who doesn't think he's going to make it through this, who doesn't think that he's going to live to see the end of this situation. He's despairing of life, and I'm begging the Lord to save him. There are lost souls who are beginning to see that they face death and judgment. Pray that God will save them. He really does answer our prayer. Pray for true revival to come to our nation and our city through this situation. As people consider this pall of death that's coming upon us, they would consider death and they would consider judgment and they would consider Christ. They would turn to him and there would be true revival. Let me leave you with this quote from E.M. Bounds, says this, <clears throat> speaking of those who don't come to Christ, speaking of the lack of revival, he says this, part of the blame lies at our door. If we do our part, God will do his. Around us is a world lost in sin. Above us is a God willing and able to save. 
it is ours to bridge to build the bridge that links heaven and earth and prayer is the mighty instrument that does the work end quote beloved it's a mystery god saves those whom he will god saves those whom he chooses to save but the mystery is is that he uses our prayer that he answers our prayer, if that, that if we diligently pray that we could truly see revival in the midst of this great difficulty. Church, oh church, I hope that you will pray and that your prayers will be effective and they will be supercharged, that the Lord would answer according to his will. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning and praise you that we can approach your throne, that we can do so boldly and confidently. Father, I pray that we would trust that you are the answerer of prayer. There are those that are listening, those who will hear this, who are struggling with worry, concerned about the future, concerned about financial difficulty, concerned about sickness, even concerned about death. Lord, there are those who are concerned about the pall of, of death, that's, that sadness that seems to be uh, creeping over us. Father, I pray that you would just be with those who are concerned, that are worried, especially if they know you. Lord, I pray that if they don't know you, that they would come to know you through the gospel, through the preaching of the gospel. I do pray this morning that there would be true revival in the land, that we would see many come to know you through this situation, that there would be many who would turn to you. Lord, we know that there are going to be, there are going to be those who shake their fists. There may even be those listening today, right now, who are saying, how dare you preach that Christ is the only way? How dare you preach that, that Christ saves us from our sins? Yet, Lord, I know for every one of those, Lord, you have those who will turn to you. You have your followers. You have those who will. Those who will follow, they will come, they will follow the, the narrow path. Well, we pray for just revival. We pray that they would, there would be those who would come to know you, who would trust in you. We pray for those who are worried and, and full of anxiety who do know you, that, Lord, that they would come to see that they need to just trust in their heavenly Father. You will not reject us. You will care for us. You will not let a, a hair perish on our head. Oh, you'll let us go through testing. You'll let us go through suffering and great difficulty but we know it's for our good and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.